Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. August 6, 2015. Tonight we have a really exciting show because it's not just me. Patricia Rodriguez from the very dry state of California joins us, and we're lucky to have her on the show. We'll talk about the important non-judicial cancellation of the loan contracts, nodes, notes, and mortgages with our esteemed guest, attorney Patricia Rodriguez, who has offices in the Los Angeles area and who can provide litigation support for other attorneys who have not studied these subjects like she has. And Patricia is prepared to talk about rescission, but also modification of loans and loan workouts. And again, I bring up our old friend standing, legal standing, and remind you that this is a jurisdictional question that can be raised at any time, even after trial and even during appeal. And we talk about the effects of rescission. We have talked about the effects of rescission on standing. And rescission, which is an offensive position rather than defensive, puts the burden where it belongs on the pretender lenders. And if you don't get all that, go to my blog and read all about it. Then get the advice of counsel and then make a decision. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you either go to our link or call 954-495-9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688 from my days in Phoenix. For our friends at the foreclosure mills who are listening to this show, no contribution is required. Just recognize the error of your ways, and we'll be happy with that. Living Lives, with over 10.5 million visits, is the number one place on the Internet to get information, forms, facts, and opinions from a variety of sources on foreclosure defense, consumer loans, and student loans. Our mission is to share as much information as possible as we can to help beleaguered homeowners and other consumers who may not even be aware of the effect the housing crisis has had on their lives. And we are accomplishing our mission here as more and more judges are seeing that the facts are not as they appear on the paperwork 
that are be that's being used or fabricated by banks, trustees, and servicers in order to foreclose. And for the judges who don't get it, the U.S. Supreme Court explained it to them. The court, the trial judge, may not interpret a statute that is clear on its face, that is unambiguous. I'm getting calls now from people all over the country that I haven't heard from in years telling me how right I was in 2007 and how all, all the courts got it wrong. Big deal. How does that help 18 million people who were displaced by bank services and trustees, in large part, who had no right to do it? Rescission under the Truth in Lending Act is all about procedure, and the procedure is pretty much the same as non-judicial foreclosure. In non-judicial foreclosure, it all starts with a letter telling you there is a new trustee on your deed of trust, then a letter saying you are in default because you stopped paying, and then another letter that says we're accelerating the loan balance, and then another letter saying that we have to sell your home. Sometimes the letters are combined. No mention of who they are or how they got into your loan deal. Those letters are legally effective when mailed or received, depending upon which state you are in. It's a done deal unless it is stopped by a judge's order. It's the only thing that will stop it in a non-judicial state. If the homeowner wants to vacate the substitution of trustee or set aside the notice of default, or vacate the notice of sale, the homeowner must bring the matter to court. But in rescission, in both non-judicial and judicial states, the, the borrower cancels the deal with a letter. Boom, done. The loan contract, note, and mortgage are gone. And if the banks want to vacate the rescission, it is the banks that must bring the matter to court. When a borrower opposes a non-judicial foreclosure, he faces daunting tasks to establish his right to bring defenses or claims. If the borrower doesn't bring those claims in court, then the non-judicial foreclosure sale goes through. If the lender does not bring its claims in court, the rescission, already effective by operation of law, remains binding on all parties. But let me say before we go to Patricia here, that as close as this sounds to a magic bullet, don't expect the banks to roll over and play dead. They have trillions of dollars at stake here, not to speak of public policy from two presidential administrations where that policy was based on pure gas. Patricia Rodriguez not only holds a law degree like me, she has also earned an MBA degree. So the concepts of securitization come much easier to her, and the quality of her analysis and writing shows that she is on top of her game and on top of the issues that the banks seek to make as complicated as possible. They want it to appear impossible to understand so that judges, lawyers, and even borrowers will back off. But even though the law is spectacularly clear that the rescission is effective when mailed and that it doesn't take a judge to rule on it to make it effective, it is effective upon mailing regardless of whether the rescission is in dispute or not. Read the Jessenowski versus Countrywide decision. 
but you are still going to need a lawyer. The good news is that this time you have the upper hand. Patricia Rodriguez, Esquire, thank you for coming on the show again. Hi. It's my pleasure to join. Well, let's see if we can plunge into some things um, that uh, uh, instead of going into your background, which we did on the first time you appeared on the show, why don't you give your rendition of what you think how you would define rescission. Great. So when we're talking about rescission, it's a very you know straightforward issue that we're looking at. And the rule that's going to govern it is the Truth and Lending Act, in particular the 1635. And you really want to take a look at that statutory code and the elements that it requires you to lay out there. And you'll notice specifically that it does require certain notices to be sent and certain things to occur when those notices haven't been sent, i.e. if they do not respond within a certain statutory time period, certain things also occur. So you're really looking to make sure that your factual pattern fits into what the statute contemplated and also what the U.S. Supreme Court case then um, in the one that you decided, you know, interprets. It's interpreting that statute. So it's important that you understand it's in that statute that all of your elements that are required to be met to fall within that protection are there. So again, did they send you the notices? Did they give you the notices after the loan was created? If they didn't, did you notice them that they weren't given? If they didn't respond in 20 days or rescind the loan and give you back the money, then you have really strong claims. If you've done that within the first three years of the origination of the loan, it's likely your claims are going to be easier for the court to accept. Whereas if you're doing it later on, you've got to be able to explain to the court in very simple terms why the loan either hasn't commenced or commenced at a later date than the origination, and therefore you know, you're within that three years that the statute relies on. I'd add to that that I think there's a, a, it's a difficult argument but I think that the the first attack when they raise the statute, if if the court allows them to, is that you actually attack the, the their right to bring it. In that, just as we've experienced on the other side when we've tried to raise the pooling and servicing agreement, and the courts have ruled that it's irrelevant and that we're. Uh, not a party to that agreement. We have no standing to assert uh, things in that agreement, etc. That the party who is supposedly opposing or looking to vacate the rescission needs to show their standing. And now that the rescission is mailed, and according to everybody, that means that the loan contract, at least for the present, along with a note and mortgage are void, they would have to show standing without the note and mortgage. That's not an argument that the court's going to take easily, but that standing argument, I think, is going to be a, an important key as this litigation goes forward. Do you agree? Yes, I, I'm in agreement with that analysis. So what are the differences in, in your mind, and I think that, that my 
statement just a moment ago pretty much raises this issue. What are the differences between theory and practice regarding rescission, teal or rescission? Well, right, and I think it goes hand in hand with what you've been describing, which is it by operation of law is automatic that upon sending the letter, the loan is re rescinded, period, plain and simple. That's what the statute speaks to. Unfortunately, in the non-judicial foreclosure state, sending the letter and rescinding the loan in and of itself does not stop a lender or a pretend lender from illegally recording a notice of default and then attempting to record a notice of trustee sale and going through with it. So it does now require the borrower who's rescinded the loan to file an affirmative action to have a court order issued by the court indicating that the rescission is valid and that because of that valid rescission, this foreclosure is wrongful. Uh, so practically speaking, it does still require a court. It does still require a judge to be involved. But theoretically, you know, it shouldn't require those things. And in theory, when the law is followed, you know, to the letter of the law, then it would automatically rescind the loan. I think that the U.S. Supreme Court case going that far and the court having to rule in the way they did indicates how much the judicial system thwarts what should otherwise be automatic in theory. Right. I, I, I agree with that analysis 100% and particularly the way you phrased it. And it's because of that that I've been suggesting uh, that people take their notice of rescission and attach it as an exhibit to something that a recording office will accept. Like in Florida, we have a notice of interest in real property. And by recording that, theoretically, that should stop the sale from going forward. But like Patricia just said, just because in theory or legally they're not supposed to do something that doesn't actually stop them from doing it so this is this is why unfortunately while congress clearly did not want to see the effectiveness of the rescission or the validity of the rescission have to go to court for a judge to say yeah um the the bottom line is that you're going to end up in court and that question is going to wiggle into the argument no matter what you, uh, uh, regardless of whether you want it there or not so patricia you've been uh, getting more and more heavily involved in this whole area of foreclosure defense and rescission and so forth what is the process for a potential client that wants to contact you uh, in the Rodriguez Law Group in order to get going on at least getting interviewed and uh, let me let me just interject that the fact that you're being interviewed folks doesn't mean that a lawyer is taking your case the lawyer is picking and choosing their cases depending upon their own caseload and what they perceive as the likelihood of success uh, in, in your matter as well as economic factors like fees and that kind of thing. So, Patricia, what is the process for contacting you and your group? 
Great. Um, and I do want to just kind of piggyback on what you were just saying there in terms of the interview process and what we're trying to gather from it. I also want to say, you know, that our firm really loves what we do. We work nights. We work weekends. We definitely go above and beyond. And so something we're really checking in the interview process on both sides, you know, I'm sure that the potential client is looking at the same thing, but our ability to work together. You know, we want to make sure that it's a good fit, that it's a good match. And so in that regard, you can reach us at our main line, 626-888-5206. And at that main line, you'll reach one of our secretaries, our staff. We'll take your contact information. That will be um, inputted into an email, and it will be sent off to our intake department. And our intake department consists of Britt and Rick, and they'll reach back out to you, and they'll set up a conference call so that you guys can all discuss and conversate over the mortgage problem you're experiencing, or family law, or bankruptcy, or any type of criminal law that you need as well. Now, when you're discussing things with them, you're not talking to an attorney, and it's not for the sake of giving you legal advice, but to gather some pre-screening information. That way we can identify immediately, for instance, if you're looking for a plaintiff's injury lawyer, that we're not the right ones to help you, and we can get you to the right people. But all of this is free, and none of this is charged to you. And as we're determining what is necessary um, for your case, and this is all free, at that point if we identify that we can help you and that you need more questions answered that our intake department can't answer for you, we set you up for a call with one of the associate or myself, one of the attorneys at the law firm. And then we're able to discuss with you what's all going on in your mortgage problem. It, to be clear, we're not able to assess in that very brief initial consultation, maybe 30 minutes to an hour, the probability of success on your particular case. It's a that we're able to review all of your documents and give you a comprehensive uh, analysis of your problem. Generally speaking, we conclude that you have a complaint and we provide you with that complaint and that, again, to the first, excuse me, for the first two to four weeks. But um, to be clear, again, in that initial consult, we won't be able to give you an opinion of success on your claims because we want to be able, and here is the benefit to you, the potential client, we want to give you a comprehensive, complete, thorough review of what's all going on. We don't want to be shooting into the dark where you're giving us bits and pieces of information and then we're spitting out, you know, we think you've got a 75 or 80% case, and then once we see all of the documents, that analysis entirely changes. So the process does require a pre-screening that, again, is all free, and then possibly an additional screening with the attorney that's free. And once the fees have been paid and there's two to four weeks have passed, we're able to give you a comprehensive answer as to all of the things that we can do to assist you in resolving your mortgage dispute. What are the benefits to the prospective client for that process you just described? Yeah, I think I touched a little bit on it in that last response, and I think, you know, for the client, it's really good because you're able to get a couple-step process. You're able to touch uh, points with each one of the contact people that you have once you're part of our firm, and we're able, again, for free to give you some consultation and identify very quickly if we can even help you. We certainly don't want you paying for us to identify, oh, we can't assist you. On the other hand, we identify up front, we can or we cannot assist you, then once you pay, we tell you exactly what all we can do, and we do those things for you. So they're basically getting a bunch of free service in connection with the appraisal of their whatever their situation is, uh, um, and they don't start paying until 
after they've actually engaged your services. Exactly. They don't pay until we know there's something we can do for them, even if it's identifying that they have no case and they need to immediately settle with the bank, which is rare, maybe 1%, but for the other 99% in that uh, initial retainer, we're able to identify exactly what can be done and provide a complaint and do the work. I just want to interject here uh, something that, you know, repeatedly comes up and which lawyers don't want to talk about, but those are the things that I do talk about. Um, homeowners, consumers, student loan, uh, people who have student loans, when they come to a lawyer, they're, they're coming at a time when they're at an emotional ebb. And because they are disturbed and they are agitated and they're nervous, they're expecting the lawyer to take the nervousness away. And the, the problem with that is that lawyers are not therapists. Lawyers are a vehicle, hopefully, to get justice and to help you in your situation. But going in there and presenting yourself as a high-maintenance client who's going to need hand-holding four times a day is probably going to push away the lawyer who might otherwise represent you. Also, trying to intimidate the lawyer into agreeing with some proposition that you heard on the Internet or that you think you heard from me or anyone else is not going to get you anywhere either. Each lawyer is required by their code of ethics to make up their own minds about the validity of your claims or defenses and not to take the word of some other person who is regarded as a guru or whatever. So I just wanted to add that in for not only for the benefit of Patricia who's taking who's doing intakes on clients but for the benefit of all lawyers who are doing intakes on clients so that the clients understand that they have a responsibility to take control of what they are uh there for and uh, if they need therapy, then they need to go to a therapist. If they need help legally, then they're in the right place if they're talking to a lawyer. Having said that, um, Patricia, I know that you're talking about some upcoming events, one of which I'm actively thinking of attending and presenting. Um, you want to talk a little bit about the foreclosure defense uh, uh, seminars and materials that uh, you'll be using? Yeah, great. Um, we're looking to be an upcoming seminar here in September, late September, possibly early October. It's going to be here in the Los Angeles area, in particular at the USC University of Southern California campus, a beautiful place for us to learn about foreclosures. It's going to be approximately six hours. And there'll be CLE credit certainly for California attorneys. And we're looking at getting a list of other states that will also allow there to be uh, CLE credit. In terms of the topics that we're going to cover, it's going to cover a lot of material. In particular, we're going to cover SB 900, the Homeowner's Bill of Rights. 
as well as the federal regulations that are governing the loan modification review process. We're then going to look at securitization and the selling fraud, including the TILA 1641G cause of action. And then the main focus will be on rescission and how it's affected the landscape of litigation over the last couple of months and how it's going to continue to shape the landscape of the litigation when it comes to foreclosure defense in the coming months and years. Well, I think I think you're the right person to put that together, and that's why I've uh, uh, I, I'm seriously considering your invitation that I come out there and speak. Um, and uh, I, I think your whole approach is very organized and clear in its presentation, which goes to show why you've had some success in court. Speaking of which. I know you're not, past success is no predictor of future success, we all know that, but can you tell us a little bit about your firm's successes regarding litigation modifications, post-foreclosure cases? Sure. Well, um, I'll start with the last one. As far as post-foreclosure cases, although, you know, it is much more challenging and much more difficult once there's been a foreclosure sale to really um, save the home the same way we have the opportunity to save the home for the borrower pre-non-judicial foreclosure, it still is possible. I've had cases where there's been an eviction proceeding filed and we've been able to get that dismissed, the sale rescinded, and the loan reinstated at modified terms. Um, again, generally speaking, if the loan is delinquent, we're able to get it reinstated at modified terms anywhere from $88,000 in principal reduction to $320,000 in principal reduction. And for those that do not have any intention of modifying the loan or wanting to work with the lender, we're able to take the litigation for years, three, four, five years where the borrower is not paying the mortgage and ultimately you know, may be able to retain the property with the lien removed entirely, depending on how the litigation goes. That's certainly what our goal is for every client. But at minimum, we've made what for some is a toxic asset because it's underwater, a positive cash flow experience where they're paying less to the attorneys than they would to live somewhere else comparable. Additionally, um, outside of all of those things, we, we strive to make this a not only positive cash flow experience, but ultimately a positive asset on the books. So um, if it's not possible to retain the property based on the litigation or based on, you know, the negotiations, then we look to seek to keep them in the property long enough for the property values to change and for them to sell it out of profit. So one way or the other, we look holistically at every possible way that we can litigate against the banks, non-litigation techniques, and we can retain the property for the borrower with a reduced mortgage or no mortgage at all. All right, we've got two minutes left here. What sets you apart? What sets you and the Rodriguez Law Group apart from other law firms practicing foreclosure defense? I already know the answer to this, but I think the rest mm -hmm. of the people hear it. Well, I think one key thing when I was growing up in the legal profession, I was learning like every single person that had a lawyer, their biggest complaint was, I can't reach my lawyer. They're never accessible. I can never touch it, and I can never get in contact with my lawyer. I can never keep in touch with my lawyer. So that's one thing we pride ourselves on. That's one thing we really truly value here, is that we have an entire department that's dedicated to customer service that's just there if we're not available immediately, but also within 24 to 48 business hours of calling the main line, you will always get a conference call with myself. 
And I, I think that really speaks to what sets us apart. Additionally, we treat each case as if it's our only case. That is our individual approach. So each factual pattern, each client, it, you know, we know their first and their last names. I think it's important that we're very connected to what we're doing, and we truly believe in the fight that we're that we're you know the war that we're waging against the top one percent. Well, you're the kind of lawyer that I want to promote. Uh, and I would uh, uh, just say uh, uh, in, in full disclosure that I get nothing from she, uh, uh, the firm has not paid me for this appearance and I will get nothing for any clients that they sign up. I simply am highlighting them because I like them. I think that they have the right approach and the right heart for the situation. I want to thank Patricia Rodriguez for joining us once again, and perhaps she can appear as a guest host here. I'll... Thanks so much, Neil. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show. For free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.